Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 70th episode, I'll be talking to Miles Schneiderman, writer and co-host of the Smash Fiction podcast, and many other podcasts, we'll get to that in a moment, about newspaper comics, with a specific focus on Calvin and Hobbes. Along the way, we discuss trying and succeeding to be a middle school asshole, the mystery of the enshortening, and how comics have the power to deliver joy and heartbreak like no other medium. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note, this episode ended up being stitched together out of two recording sessions across two weekends, just due to a confluence of timing, circumstance, and in one case, a really angry baby. I managed to get the transition to be pretty much seamless, but as a result, the episode is extra long, and you may find it takes us a little while to get to our usual intros. I considered cutting some of the earlier conversations, but A, they were good conversations, and B, there was too much connective tissue, so it would seem like a huge gaping hole. So rather than do that, I've left the episode extra long. We join this conversation already in progress. Those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Miles Schneiderman, and I am a freelance writer, podcaster, basically anything that I'm hired to do, usually on a contractual, occasionally untaxed basis. <laughs> oh no, are we blowing up your spot right now? April's gonna really <laughs> suck for me. But yeah, so I do Smash Fiction is a thing that I do that I am one of the people who helped come up with that and one of the main hosts on that, which, you know, if you're listening to this show, you've already heard two of my other co-hosts on this show, one of them twice. So if you're not already (laughs) familiar with Smash Fiction, then, you know, I don't know what you're listening to. Yeah, my show has been infested with Mulcairins yes. on a regular well, I mean, basis. It happens. Sometimes you just, you know, you get Mulcairins and there's not much you can do. I mean, I've tried to call the... Do you want to get Mulcairins? Because that's how you get Mulcairins. I've tried to call the Exterminator. He says there's nothing he can do about it. So, like, I have a Mulcairin-infested <laughs> life. In addition to Smash Fiction, I am a co-host on the Unspoiled Podcast Network. Specifically, I co-host the Dark Tower show, where okay. Natasha Kingston and I go through the Dark tower series chapter by chapter and talk about it we are coming to the end of book five at the moment she's never read Mm -hmm. it before so she's reading it slowly over the course of the podcast whereas i have uh, actually recently finished the entire dark tower series so that's a lot of fun and then uh, i also do her game of thrones coverage with her which is only available for patrons of her show that's pretty fun because I actually swore off Game of Thrones after season five and refused to watch it. So now the show is Natasha and another co-host asking me multiple choice questions about what happened in the episode. And they try to stump me and I try <laughs> to figure out, you know, what if, what bullshit they're spouting. So that's a lot of fun. And I'm occasionally a writer on some other places. A Tower of the Hand 
if uh, I can get dragged back into the Game of Thrones Song of Ice and Fire network. Sometimes I have pieces going up there, had one up there recently, and then I have my own blog, which is about science fiction, called Universes of the Mind, which is at universesofthemind.com. Oh, and also I'm the host and producer of the Odyssey <laughs> Storytelling Podcast as well, so... <laughs> and also you were a blackboard monitor once at school. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's a lot, man. That's that maybe like shit, man. I've had Sims on the show, and I know it's a longer intro than he got. Well, yeah, it's because <laughs> Sims, like those dudes, get paid well for what they do. I have to do a million different things that pay, all pay me like shit, so that I can pay my rent. <laughs> is the point? You're pedaling real hard to get up to the speed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my my wife is slightly exasperated, but always supportive. Which I think is a state that a lot of us can understand. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Usually when. I hear my partner of many years and mother of my child say to me, wow, that certainly was a lot of information about Hamilton, (laughs) which may have been the nicest gentle shade I have ever received. (laughs) Actually, I have a background in radio, which is how I first got into podcasting and recently applied to be a DJ at a local radio station. I mentioned it to my- Wait, 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 Miles. What would be like your morning zoo crew name? So, you know- (laughs) (laughs) I love that you couldn't just say one. It's like, there's, okay- I need to explain something. Yeah, first. no, there's a story because I, I used to be I did college radio and uh, and local radio in Flagstaff, Arizona when I was living up there. My radio name at the time was Old Man Miles because I was a 27, 28, 29 year old college student doing shows with a bunch of 20 year olds. My first show with them, I happened to mention that I knew what cassettes were. And they oh just looked at me like I was an insane person. It was Old Man Miles from there on out. And I th- which <laughs> it was a really deep inside joke that Dan made on a recent episode of Smash Fiction. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I mentioned to my wife that I was, you know, I, hey, I applied for this radio spot. She's like, okay, great. When are you going to do that? <laughs> like, you know, in my free time. <laughs> During my 20 annual minutes, I get to take a breath and consider my life. That's right. Yeah, no, I can't not be busy. I have to be doing things constantly. It's just, I don't know. I suppose that's what makes me a beautiful and unique snowflake, although that wasn't going to be my response to that. But, you know, I really can't stop. I can't. Like, I have to be, every hour of my day has to be filled with projects, and that's just what I do. Yeah, it was one of those things where I recently did, I'm a photographer, I did a shoot for a friend's improv workshop and I got actually got paid for it, which was great. It was one of those things where it's like I was on the train and normally the train to work and back is where I do a lot of my editing for this podcast. And I was editing photos and I was like quietly grumping <laughs> that, oh no, I can't edit my podcast because I have to do this thing I'm actually getting paid for. <laughs> and I had to take a step back for myself and said, just, just think about what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. Just take a minute. No, and I do actually have a a paying regular job source of income, and I fucking wish I didn't have to. Like, that is the thing that I want to do the least. Like, my ultimate goal in my life is to not have a job. I just want to do this kind of thing (laughs) and and just get paid enough money for all my million projects that I can sustain myself and my family. So that's that's the ultimate Mm -hmm. goal. Until then, you know, I have a boss. Until then, hustle, hustle. Yeah. Now, it's funny you mentioned quitting Game of Thrones because I am I am a two-time quitter of Game of Thrones. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So initially, I had watched the first season, and then after that, I read the first book and then went back and started the second season. And it was about halfway through the second season when Arya was sitting at Hall with the other prisoners, and everyone was like just waiting for their turn to be taken off and be tortured to death. Uh-huh. And they could hear the screaming in the next room. Yeah. And it was sort of the monotony of, well, fuck, now what do we do? 
and they're all just kind of staring as this screaming happens off screen. And I reached a moment where I actually sat up and I went, you know what? I don't want to watch this anymore. It's too much. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of the boredom of despair sure. really like hit a button in me. And I went, you know what? I don't have a spot in my life for this right now. And I let it kind of fall away. And then I was cold turkey. I was like, nope. People are like, oh, did you see Game of Thrones? Nope. Nope. I quit that. It was too much for me. I didn't do it. Until Kimiko and I moved in together. And she had watched the whole way through. And so I then got back on in season six. Okay. Having skipped everything in the middle. That's... I also, in between, tried to read the second book. And there was a spoilers for the second uh, Song of Ice and Fire book. The bit where Theon kills a couple of kids and says that they're Rickon and Bran yeah. and brings them back in. And that's a reveal. But at first, he brings in just their bodies. Yep. And I remember messaging my then partner and saying, if he's just killed them off page and brought them in as bodies, I'm fucking done with this series. <laughs> and I'm like, because that seems like the kind of cruelty that Mr. Martin would easily do. The first time I read that, I skipped ahead to make sure. Because you know how all the chapters have, like, the characters' names on them? The names, yeah. I skipped ahead to make sure there was a brand chapter later on. I I just, Ah. I cheated. Yeah, that's funny. So you missed a lot of horrible shit that you didn't need to see, to be honest. Don't worry. When I started watching season six, and they were starting to reference things, I basically just went to the Wiki of Ice and Fire and just read synopses and character backgrounds Mm -hmm. so I could catch up for, like, maybe three nights. And then when I got back to it, suddenly I was up to speed. And they built up enough goodwill with me right up until the end of season six, when they blew up, like, two-thirds of their characters. I got so mad. I'm aware that that happened. I didn't actually see that because I quit after season five. I was a super fan of the Song of Ice mm. and Fire book series. I read the first four, devoured them over and over again to the point where I came up with, and like there were a bunch of fan websites that have like all these theories about what's happening and who's doing what and who's secretly a member of which family and all this shit. In 2010, I was rereading the fourth book for the hundredth time and I caught something that made me want to, like that I had a theory and I actually wrote it up just because I, you know, I'm a writer and I decided to write it. So I wrote up this little essay about a theory and sent it off to John Jasmine, who's the guy who runs TowerOfTheHand.com, because they were my favorite like fan site of the three or four that existed at the time. He emails me back and he says, hey, you know, I love this. This is great. We're going to publish it. Incidentally, we just lost somebody, one of our writers. Do you want to like write for us more regularly? And it was all like, you know, he wasn't paying me. It was it's all volunteer stuff. But I ended up writing for Tower of the Hand for, for years after that. I was one of the reviewers of the show. I think I reviewed every episode from seasons two through five became a big member of the community it was like a big part of my life was this book series and this show but as time went on and martin no one who knows anything about what we're talking about right now needs me to tell them how slow he's been writing between the total lack of new material i think the fifth book came out in 2011 and myself and other analysts mined it for all that we could, but frankly, it was pretty light on the theory stuff. Like, it didn't really give you mm-hmm. any answers. I love the fifth book, but it, it's not one of those books where you're like, oh, now we can write about, you know, all this stuff. Like, there's a couple of major things, but really, it's a pretty shallow well. So between, over the years, the kind of, you know, the analysis starts to dry up. You know, there's no sixth book forthcoming. You know, that was 2011, last time the dude published anything. Then the show was going downhill for me. I really liked the first three seasons and then the fourth one I I started to really 
really dislike it. And the fifth season came along, and I was not liking it and not liking it, and then one particular episode, I was just so offended on multiple levels that I quit the show. And by that point, I was... You know, I committed to reviewing the entire season for Tower of the Hand. It was my first time, I think it was my first time being a co-host of Unspoiled for Game of Thrones, so I had committed to doing that. So I was like, all right, I'll finish out the season, but after that I'm done. And everybody said, you know, oh, you know, whatever, you'll be back. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I, at this point, especially given that, because now I know everything that happens because I've been doing Unspoiled, so even though I don't watch the show, I'm aware of what has happened on the show. And I, I don't know, as far as I'm concerned at this point, the show is glorified fan fiction it's not terribly well written glorified fan fiction i have no interest i will be back in you know as a fan of that series when the sixth book comes out then i'll jump back into Mm -hmm. it but for now i just i need to be done with it for now and nothing says that more than the review i just wrote of his most recent short story which was probably a little bit harsher than it needed to be (laughs) but right now it's just like you know my review is basically like, yeah, no, this sucks. It's not what any of us want. And like, it was basically probably a cash grab. So fuck off. And you know, <laughs> like the, people don't need to read that. That doesn't need to be written. <laughs> so I should probably just step back from it. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's something I remember talking with someone about video games for a while because there was a time in my life a couple of years ago where I was watching and listening to lots and lots of video game podcasts where it talked about like upcoming games and like looking at things like preview stuff, like lots of stuff on Destructoid and things like that. And like I'm never someone who buys a game at first run because games are ludicrously expensive in Australia, mm. anywhere from 90 to $110 Jesus. for a new game. I thought they were overpriced here. Oh, no. That's why I was so happy when I found out that PS3 and PS4 were not region locked and I could buy overseas because, yeah, no. So here's the thing. It's like I remembered someone on one of the Destructoid shows was talking about a game. And it was a game that had come out maybe four months before. They were talking about, oh, they've released a patch to the multiplayer so you can do these other things. And the response was, ugh, who's even playing that game anymore? And I went, wait, I haven't even bought that game. It's on my list to be like, oh, when it comes down to like, you know, one of the sales or if I have a trade in, maybe I'll grab it. And you've said that it's already dead to the point where no one is playing it and no one will care. And I kind of like felt the interest in hype like evaporate off me. Mm -hmm. And I went like, you know, this game will be just as good when I play it now as when I would have played it back then because I don't play online stuff. I don't play against people. I play the story that a game gives me. And so, for example, I can play Bioshock, the first one, five years after the fact, which I did and still enjoy it. I got that way a little bit with prestige television, especially Mm -hmm. with streaming services the way they are now. Oh, sure. I'm behind on. Everybody right now is like, oh, Stranger Things season two. I'm like, I still haven't seen the first one, so don't tell me anything. (laughs) See, I did see the first one, but again, talking about you know, hype backlash and stuff like you did with the, with the Game of Thrones thing, where I loved the first Stranger Things. I really enjoyed it and talked a lot about it. I think it was long enough between the first and second season where it was the thing that everyone was really into, and then it was the thing that some people were kind of sick of, and then it was the thing that everyone decided, oh, well, you know, it was overrated, and yeah. then it became a punchline. And then the minute they announced the second season, all that irony gets dumped to the side. And people are excited again. Right. It's like, oh, how great was Stranger Things? It's it's a cycle of... There was one particular podcast that I listened to where they're like, oh, new Stranger Things is coming out. And one of the guys said something like, oh, yeah, what what 80s movies are they ripping off this time? (laughs) And I went... (laughs) hang on, I remember when you were really excited about that show. And then when the trailer came out, he was really excited again. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Hey, hey, some of us pay attention. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. You are responsible for the things you say, jerk. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's, He's not actually a jerk. I try not to be responsible for the things that I say, personally. That's, that's <laughs> my, another one of my goals. Because I talk a lot of shit, especially about video games. <laughs> you don't say. Although, at the moment, I went in and I traded in a whole bunch of stuff because I was cleaning house. And I found a whole bunch of games that I'd been kind of sitting on. And some I decided I was never going to play. And some I'd finished. And so I went in and I got like 270 bucks worth of trading credit. And I got... A whole bunch of things and one of those decisions was deciding that no i'm never going to finish dishonored 2 i just don't like it as much as the first one <laughs> it takes that challenge level and it tips over into just immensely frustrating i spent a month on one particular room in that clockwork mansion where i just could not get past one of the robots just like noped out so i traded in all these games and i got a bunch of games like i got overwatch and i got mad max and i got a few others and then as like an add-on at the end i'm like oh i'll grab xcom 2 you know i really love the first one i'll get xcom 2 and then i made the mistake of playing xcom 2 first and now i am eyeballs deep in xcom 2 and everything else has to wait <laughs> uh, yeah i believe what you're saying i just don't know what any of those games are it's uh what? <laughs> I honestly don't. Like, I've, Miles. I've heard of Overwatch, but like, I don't play video games, man. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said you yeah. talk a lot of shit about video games. I do, yeah. But you don't play video games. No, I really don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, 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 Miles, Miles, are you are you a fake geek boy? Am I what? Have I rumbled you? What, what is a fake geek boy? I don't even know what that is. Like, am I, oh. is, is this someone who like, you know, has lots of opinions and criticisms about something they actually know nothing about? <laughs> No, it's a gender-flipped version of the terrible, shitty stereotype that oh, evil people on the girl. internet will use. Exactly. So I was choosing <laughs> I chose I see, to flip I see, it, I see. and clearly I missed my target entirely. Sorry, that joke went right over my head. You know, it's kind of something I've known, I'm known for on Smash Fiction, because like every time we do video game characters on Smash Fiction, everybody else gets super excited, and I'm like, this is great, I don't know who any of these people are. Because I haven't played, <laughs> like, the most modern video game that I have played... I think is Team Fortress 2. Okay. And I only played Team Fortress 2 because I had some friends that were playing it, and I got super into it for a little while. The Malkarens and the Smash Fiction people have been on me to play Mass Effect and Dragon Age and Bioshock and, and all this stuff, and it's like, to be clear, Mass Effect is a game that is in my house right now, but I will never <laughs> play it. I, I guarantee you, I will never play Mass Effect because... It's not the kind of game that I care about. It's like, I used to be really into video games, but video games really kind of changed on me while I was like, I took a break from playing them for a while because I got really busy. And, you know, during that time, the games that I loved are just not what games are anymore. And that's fine. But everybody these days is trying to make video games into an art form and a storytelling medium. And I just don't see it. <laughs> Old man Miles strikes again. I mean, yeah, basically, it's, it's <laughs> I am a video game curmudgeon. <laughs> Back in my days, when I was playing suck with, <laughs> I had to type in the commands and then drop a bomb, and it never hit. I was looking up gifts of suck with to send to my dad because that was the <laughs> like one of the first video games I ever played <laughs> was the DOS version of suck with. And, like, I just sent it to him, and some guy had, like, made gifts of him attempting to play, and all the ways that game would screw you. Like, if you're playing against the computer, the computer would, like, dive bomb you and smash into you <laughs> as soon as yeah. you took off the yeah. runway. It was amazing. Well, it's just funny, because, like, video games were such a huge part of my childhood. I was super into video games when I was a kid, but I was into video games because I like playing games. I don't know. I, like... If I want to be told a story, I will read a book. Because when I was a kid, I was a tremendous bookworm. Like, that's all I wanted to do is read. So it's like, I have books 
for my stories, and I have TV and I have movies for my stories, if I play in a video game, then I'm playing a game. And, like, your 20-minute cutscene with, like, really fantastic rendering of your characters and, like, I'm sure the voice acting is excellent, I'm sure the storyline is compelling, I I don't care. Because the focus is on the story, whereas I always wanted the focus to be on the gameplay. And for me, I think that's a lot of what is being lost is because, like, Oh, you, you go and you log a hundred hours on fucking, I don't know. I, I don't want to like beat up on Mass Effect. It's just the only thing coming to mind right now. You log a hundred hours on Mass Effect. I, I don't, who wants to play a game for a hundred hours? I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't watch a movie for a hundred hours. <laughs> you know no, what I mean? Like, There's a good movie with some good mechanics built in. and <laughs> I don't think, no, I don't think like movies, a four hour movie is too long. I would argue usually a three-hour movie is too long. I am the arguer for the return of the 90-minute comedy. That's what I want. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big comedy guy, but that's fine. Like, 90-minute anything. Actually, yeah, 90-minute comedy or 90-minute horror I think is great. I love short movies. Short movies are great. I think you should be able to tell your story in a tiny amount of time. And it's like, the games that I loved are not, like, the games that creative people are working on right now like creative people aren't working on real-time strategy which was a big thing for me you know age of empires and the first two warcraft games until they became shit god and then like puzzle gaming here's a great thing so when i was a really little kid one of the first video games that i remember falling in love with was an old mac game called flashback flashback was a game where you played this dude you open the game and you just get dropped into the gameplay there's no story there's no anything you're a dude with a gun and you're in this like forest environment and you have to shoot robots and like find shit and solve puzzles with them and like at one point you come across like this holographic cube that's like it has a recording from you you because you've lost your memory and it tells you what you have to do and there's like a semblance of a story but the story is so secondary and really what it's about is you know rolling around and jumping and climbing trees and finding the key that goes to the door and then you got to put two things together so it does the thing so they made a remake of flashback and i actually picked it up recently just to see because i loved flashback so much and i actually played it i found it on an emulator recently i beat the game again super fun like shitty ass graphics because it's from the 80s or early 90s but i got this new version for steam and you know it's basically a remake of the game with better graphics and like actual voice acting there's no actual voices in flashback it's just text and and a slightly modified story but i'm playing it and i'm going like man this is fine but like everything that i'm enjoying about this is the stuff that i was enjoying about the old game none of my enjoyment comes from the fact that the graphics are better or that i can hear their voice you know what i mean yeah i don't know i actually think i might have something that might be your bridge have you ever played spelunky or heard of it spelunky yeah okay so spelunky is a little like kind of metroidvania platformer you're a little explorer dude and you're running around in a tomb and you are, you know, whipping snakes and like using bombs to like break your way through. It's sort of, you know, retro kind of, I'd say more 16-bit than 8-bit. I don't know everyone says 8-bit, but it's like, this is more 16-bit. Mm. There are two things that make Spelunky what I consider to be almost a perfect game. First off, just jump, jump into Google and type in Spelunky and see how it looks. And then I'll go on. You see how I mean how it's kind of a very retro looking. Yeah. So here's what makes it special, in my opinion. One, all of the levels are procedurally generated. You will never, ever play a level the same way. 
whenever you go to a new cave, it creates itself randomly. Interesting. So basically, there's no way to learn the level system. So it's always going to be a new challenge. Secondly, you have three hearts and no lives. So basically, every hit you take is permanent. And when you die, no matter how far in the game you are, you're done. That game is done. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it so much. (laughs) It is also one of the most punishingly difficult games I have ever played. The jumping is super precise. All of the mechanics are fantastic. And the enemies are sneaky and difficult and horrible. But here's the thing. If you get a good run, you can play for hour and a half, two hours, get a whole slew of new weapons, find new treasures, unlock things, and you die and it's all gone. Oh, God. You know, I'm getting, uh, it reminds me of Super Ghouls and Ghosts. Did you yeah. ever play that? Yeah. yeah. It's got that vibe, too. And, like, even, for example, like, if you see, like, there are little, like, blocks and stuff, certain yeah. blocks will have, like, spiders behind them so that when you move them, you'll just get tagged for half a heart. Yeah. And every time it happens, you bounce back a little and you get hurt. And every time you just go, oh, fuck. Because it's, like, one-sixth of your entire health for the entire game. That's great. Unless you go and buy a heart, there's no way to replenish it. It's one of those ones where you could play it for 15 minutes or you can play it for an entire day. Yeah, it's great. Spelunky's great. That sounds amazing. And, like, if there are some games, you know, I'll always be into, you know, fighting games because fighting games, you don't need stories. You know, like, you can look into the story of, like, if you care about the story of Mortal Kombat or Tekken, then you can, like, you can get that. That's available. But you don't need to have it. You can just sit down with your buddy and just beat the crap out of each other for ten minutes. The Stanley Parable was a pretty good game. I enjoyed that immensely. Although, that game, I think, it's kind of a novelty appeal thing. It's not like I've ever gone back to it. You know what I mean? After you played it. Because after you kind of explore everything you you know it doesn't really have a lot of replay value but yeah i don't know i just i wish first of all like i'm not i don't want to complain too much about video games being the way they are because were i to spend any length of time in my life right now playing video games my life would be over pretty quickly (laughs) because my wife would murder me i do have some like a real strong sense of nostalgia for mist (laughs) and there was a whole series of games back when i was a kid called the dr brain thinking game And the first one I played, I think, was called The Island of Dr. Brain, and it was a fucking DOS game. (laughs) And, like, and these were just, like, you know, they were puzzle games. There was no combat. There was no story. Like, Dr. Brain is trapped somewhere. Go rescue him. Well, how do I do that? Well, you do these puzzles. Okay. You know, and that was it. And you could sit down. Okay. I'm I'm looking this up now. This is a point and click, right? Yeah, there's a few Dr. Brain ones. They got a little more advanced as they went along. There's one called Puzzle Madness, I think, that was, like, one of my favorites when I was a little bit older. Because that one, you play a clone of Dr. Brain named Pro, and you're trying to stop the evil clone of Dr. Brain, whose name is Khan. <laughs> yeah, That's so absolutely. dumb. Of course it is. <laughs> but see, like, I love that shit. So you have to go around solving puzzles and gathering items that, like, cancel out his items. I don't know. It's super fun. I always go back to, like, I wanted to talk about puzzle-based video games and, like, old-school video games on this show because it just really informed my sensibility of what entertainment was. Because, like, now I don't play video games anymore. What I do is I play board games. Because what's happened is that board games have advanced to the point where if what you want is mechanics without very much story, like with a limited amount of story, then board games are in a perfect state of evolution for that right now. Because you've got people coming out with really cool mechanical systems that have a little bit of story, but the focus is always on playing the game. 
And it's a thing that you do with friends, it's a social activity, and it's just, it locked in for me that games are games and stories are stories. And I think that people have said to me they think video games are the ideal platform for storytelling because they're interactive, and I just, I could not disagree more. And I think so much of that is because I grew up having my stories non-interactive. Interactivity was reserved to games that I could play and win. So, and also I'm like really fucking competitive. As far as I'm concerned, if I can't win the game, then why am I playing the game? <laughs> That's the other thing. Well, let's take it back a minute. Let's talk a little bit about you before we go into your topic. So whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up here where I live now in Tucson, Arizona. It's just fucking hot all the time. <laughs> it's awful. I did not expect to be back here. I came back here because the woman I ended up marrying lived here. I believed I had escaped for a long time. For many years, I was pretty sure I had escaped Tucson. Now, I grew up here, and I actually grew up, for the most part, let's say about half my life, was spent a few houses down from where I live now. It's pretty crazy. Okay. And do you feel that Tucson has changed in the time since you were growing up and where you are now, or has it remained this kind of bubble? Tucson's interesting. I've gotten more of an appreciation for it over the years because it used to be like, you know, my hometown. So, you know, fuck it. It sucks. I have to get out. But Tucson is actually a pretty cool place to be if you're as far to the political left as I am. If you're going to be in Arizona and you're going to be a leftist, Tucson is the place to be. Let me put it that way. It's gotten a lot bigger you know, there's a lot of development going on. There's a lot of things that really suck about the direction of the city, what's being done to, for example, the downtown area, and exactly how much pandering to the University of Arizona is happening. I also have a special grudge against the University of Arizona because they kicked me out twice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's all right. Tucson's fine. I fucking hate the weather. That's always been my biggest problem with Arizona is like, I hate being hot. It gets 110, 115 degrees here in the summer now and it's just it's it's ridiculous and i would so much rather be in a place where it snows than be here <laughs> sorry i'm just i'm thinking back and realizing that i'm currently living in a place where it regularly gets to 110 degrees and i came from a place where it snows and i'll tell you what hotter's nicer <laughs> i mean hey that's fine i've, I've lived <laughs> in both and i know which one i prefer <laughs> You know, I lived in Chicago during the winter, and that was awesome. Like, I remember, like, bundling myself up and biking around in the snow, and it was my favorite thing. <laughs> I lived in Flagstaff, which is a little mountain town, so it's, like, about 7,000 feet elevation. I loved when it snowed there. I lived in Seattle. Lots of rain at the time, not so much now, but I don't know. I can do without the sun. <laughs> I really can. So growing up on the surface of Mercury as you did, yeah, yeah. what sort of kid were you? I just, I wanted to read everything. That was my thing. I had to get glasses when I was a kid pretty early on because I wouldn't stop reading in the dark. I was once uh, in the back seat of my mom's car while she was driving. We got into an accident and I didn't notice because <laughs> okay. I was in the back seat reading. They had to be like, hey, Miles, we're getting out of the car because we got in an accident. <laughs> And I was like, oh, oh really? We? What? You know, walk down the street with a book in man. That was, I think that's one of the best expressions of who I was as a kid. Was I just had my nose in the book all the time. I was the smart kid until I got to middle school and learned that it wasn't at all cool to be the smart kids. <laughs> so I kind of tried to be an asshole for a while and succeeded pretty thoroughly. <laughs> it's pretty hard to succeed at being an asshole as thoroughly as I was able to in middle school and high school. 
But, you know, between asshole uh, moments, I found the time to play a lot of role-playing games and make some friends who were uh, good enough people to forgive me my assholery. <laughs> and eventually grew out of that and, and became what I think is a, a much better person. But yeah, I learned everything I know from books, and my wife is still pretty exasperated with me on, on that score, too, because I'm always reading something. She'll always be like, you know, hey, like, could you, could you put down your fucking smartphone and stop like texting people and i'm like i'm not texting people i'm reading an article she's like i know (laughs) it's one of those things where it's like i'm also someone who will easily fall into the smartphone trap when i'm around people except for and i get really defensive about it because i feel like i'm a better multitasker than that like i can carry on a conversation while checking twitter or like looking at my phone for something then i'll see people who are not good multitaskers who will just like go into their phone in the middle of a conversation and probably hypocritical and not self-aware i say (laughs) put your fucking phone down and they go right i would like you to look at who just asked me that question and i'm like hey 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 i can i'm i'm not like that I'm the one who's not like that. Right. Sure. Everyone else is the problem. <laughs> yeah, I have a really complicated relationship with my technology because I will definitely get that feeling of like, no, I'm just looking at something. You know, I'm just I'm just checking the scores of the football game, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. then, and then they'll be like, well, somebody just asked you a fucking question. I'll be like, oh, really? Did they? <laughs> Shit. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have opinions about what the preponderance of mobile screen devices is doing to human culture. But, you know, I'm, uh, again, I by no means uh, exonerated on that score. Oh, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where you can smell your own. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so you know it's wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like I always say, I'm, I'm the most radically left person you'll ever meet who loves pro wrestling and football. And it's like, <laughs> yes, there's a cognitive dissonance there because there has to be because you can't be a radically left person and love pro wrestling and football without there being a cognitive dissonance. So it's the same thing with smartphone technology. It's like, yes, I acknowledge that what I'm doing is not what I should be doing right now, but I'm going to keep doing it. Thank you very much. I'm going to go back to reading this article about how smartphones are killing humanity. <laughs> hey, man, no ethical consumption under capitalism. It's the world uh, we live in. <laughs> Lord. Yeah, <for> sure. <laughs> So when you were a kid, like, the thing is, because you've talked a bit about some of the shows you're on and a lot of it being around, like, you know, sort of fantasy and science fiction and stuff. Mm. Were those the things that were getting your attention when you were walking while reading? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it was all fantasy. Some science fiction, too, but mainly fantasy, to be honest. I read, like, kids' sci-fi. There was a really great series when I was a kid that I was super into, the My Teacher is an Alien series. Oh, yes. Into that. Yeah. Did you read those? Oh, I yeah. did. Astute listeners can go back to Al Collins' first episode, and we talked a bit about the adventures of Brock's home and <laughs> what happens oh, right. when you become magically smart and become the focus of a book in the second book in the series. That's right. That's right. That's right. I remember that now. But anyway, yeah. But I actually realized like a couple of years ago that I didn't, in fact, know as much about science fiction as I thought I did, which is why I started the Universes of the Mind blog, where I write about sci-fi that I'm reading. But yeah, it was all fantasy for me for the most part. It was Dragonlance, Lloyd Alexander, Oh, yes. I will go back and reread his books any day of the week. I was really into Susan Cooper and still am. Susan Cooper books are going to be like the basis of my next tattoo is how into those I was. Oh, wow. And it's like, yeah. Okay, I okay. Go back stop, stop, stop. Those. You got yeah. you got to explain it now. What? <laughs> what your tattoo is going to be. Oh, well, okay. So I, I don't know if you're at all familiar with the Darkest Rising series. I can see a compiled copy on my shelf from where I am sitting. Oh, okay. Well, excellent. I read the first one, and then I borrowed The Dark is Rising from a teacher for nine months and read it, like, every two weeks, (laughs) and then powered through the rest to the point where they all blended into a blur for me. Oh, 
and, and then as an adult, eventually saw a combined copy and went, I need that on my shelf. And so I did. I reread them a couple of years ago. It was really funny realizing like how little about like the last two I actually remembered. Oh yeah. Cause like the one you remember is the darkest rising, right? Like that's the, that's yeah. the book where he has to collect all the little circle with a cross in him Pokemon yeah. in order to <laughs> <laughs> the six signs. Yes. Which yeah, yeah. incidentally is going to be the tattoo. I'm going to, um... I was about to say, I think if you're going to have some kind of icon of the series, I think it would be that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I can't really afford to get like a big tattoo right now. Like another mm. big tattoo. My idea was like, screw it. I'll just get one of the signs at a time. And that mm-hmm. way I don't have to spend a whole lot of money at the very beginning. So my birthday is in March and I'm getting the first one then because he gets the first sign for his birthday. So. Oh, that's good. But yeah, so those books, you know, lots of urban fantasy. Oh, well, I didn't even fucking mention Shannara, and I would be <laughs> remiss to not mention Shannara because I loved the Shannara. So I, I guess I should say Shannara because that's how Terry Brooks says it, but it sounds so wrong to me. <laughs> I stand by the fact that whatever pronunciation you first did in your head when you were a kid is the correct one. Yeah, so it's the Shannara series. Basically, it's... it's I was into all these great book series that got turned into terrible movies or TV shows, is what I'm saying. That's what they all have in common. So I've kind of observed from afar the phenomenon that is the terrible television series of the Shannara Chronicles. <laughs> but when I was a kid, that managed to be a series that, for all I loved fantasy books. I just never quite got into them. They were always on the shelf next to the stuff I was buying, but I never ended up reading them. I was more of a Robert Jordan and Catherine Kerr sure, reader. Yeah. What was Shannara actually about? Like, What was the kind of the hook of it that made it more than just kind of epic fantasy? You know, it's funny because Shannara gets a lot of shit because a lot of people accuse it of being just a Lord of the Rings ripoff. And the first book that he wrote in 77, The Sword of Shannara, is like absolutely a Lord of the Rings ripoff. Like, it's really obvious. <laughs> but, you know, the series continues. There's like 30 of them now. The thing I love about Shannara is that it is a generation-spanning epic. The original trilogy, The Sword of Shannara, The Elfstones of Shannara, and The Wish Song of Shannara, involve three generations of the same family. <clears throat> so you've got the first to basically your Hobbit analogs in the first book. And the second book's about one of their grandsons. And the third book is about that guy's kids. That's the first trilogy. And then the following series is four books. And it's like 100 years later, but the same family. They keep doing that until you get to like, in some of the trilogies, you start seeing a little bit more technology, you know, and the world starts to evolve and more science starts happening, which is funny because the whole premise of Shannara is that supposedly it's the future. It's a, oh, it's a post-nuclear... It's after the end kind of thing. Yeah. They always refer to this thing called the Great Wars, which is a nuclear war, like World War Three, And then after that, the survivors of humanity kind of went underground and some of them got super short and became dwarves and et cetera, et cetera. And eventually like generations later they came up and it's this fantasy world well i love the expression got super short it seems like there would be an event called the inshortening <laughs> the inshortening <laughs> the shortcoming <laughs> what's really interesting about it is that so in the 90s he kind of took a break like he wrote that first trilogy and he wrote the four book series the quadrilogy i guess that comes after it and then he wrote like a prequel a book that came before all the others. It seemed like he was either done or he was taking a break because instead of writing Shannara, he starts writing this other trilogy, which was this kind of smaller scale, quieter urban fantasy story, which I love. It's called the Word in the Void trilogy. Those books hop on a smaller scale, like I said. So the main character is 14 in the first book and then she's 19 in the second book and then she's 29 in the third book. What ended up happening was that he wrote another series linking the two. So it turns out that the modern fantasy is like super prequels 
And then there's a trilogy that, like, shows you what happened, how the war started, you know what I mean? There's a duology, a series of two books that shows you the transition between the war and Shannara, and it's like, it turned into this enormous, like, I'm not even kidding, like, 30, 35 book series, which he is still writing, and claims that the series he's working on now is going to be the last of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> But yeah, right, yeah. But like, it's like 30, 35 books that is all one story. And there are connections to everything. And I don't know, I get super sucked into it. Now, is it, I always forget, is like, is it Foundation, the one that it's like eventually merged with another series where it's like, oh yeah, by the way, you'll see that due to ripples in time or something or other. That's Asimov, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And the foundation deals with time skips as well, so it seems easier. But it's funny because you were talking about that sort of generational storytelling. It was reminding me of what I really liked about Catherine Kerr. So have you read any of the Catherine Kerr Devery series? I have not. Okay. It was one of those books where the first book was just a random book that like my aunt gave me because she was a fantasy nerd and she was always trying to get me to read Mercedes Lackey and I wasn't interested in Mercedes Lackey. <laughs> I remember she like put me onto Piers Anthony at a young age, which is really the only time you can read Piers Anthony before it becomes uncomfortable. Uh, uh, don't tell my wife that. Yeah, she yeah. loves Piers Anthony. I still have a soft spot for like, oh, yeah. I remember, like reading Castle Rugna at the age of 12 and laughing at all the puns and stuff. But, oh, yeah, man. And so she gave me this book and, and sort of the caveat of these books, it's low fantasy in that it's very realistic is the wrong word in that, you know, your your characters are not worrying about saving the world. They are worried about, you know, where's my next meal coming from? Am I going to be able to get a job? in the Mm. next little while very kind of grounded fantasy but the thing is rather than dealing with descendants it deals with reincarnation and it will do it in a way like the way it's described is like sort of a woven tapestry where you'll have some colors come in and go out and what you get is this sort of repeating archetypal story of these maybe like eight or nine characters there was Mm -hmm. something that happened a long time ago and everyone died because of it and because of that every time they reincarnate they run through a version of the same story and the details are always different but it's the same kind of group of archetypes that are the same you know air quote souls and we meet the current ones before we know what's going on and then we flash back to the old one and then we see a version 2.5 in the middle of it Mm -hmm. there's like a reincarnation chart at the beginning so you can kind of whenever you meet a new character you can go oh wait he's a reincarnation of that guy which is (laughs) kind of going to be like this but the way they of course because the settings are always different it's like interesting this guy might be a fighter in uh, a soldier in the first one and when he comes back it's called Devery right Devery and it started off being like I only read the one book like 20 times because I was a kid and then I started getting them out of order from the library and it's actually a really good series for that because you get new sets of reincarnations throughout while the main story continues so you can jump around it makes a lot of sense what ends up happening is like the whole thing is like well, they're going to keep reincarnating until they fix this one big problem that started mm. in the first one and there's one guy who's immortal who was one of the, the characters in the first story he was a young man in the first story and he becomes a sort of old wizard that continues throughout and he keeps meeting these same people over thousands of years and he's just like oh god this again all right i'm gonna try and fix it this time and then you get stuff like, like he gets sick of all the little kind of petty squabbling and wars and stuff. And so he's like, well, what if I just like take this kid, I like train him up and like he's a basically good kid and I train him up to be this like King Arthur type and I give him all the backing of like my magical know-how without telling him this. And I do things like I subtly influence the people he meets to like see him in a beauteous light and stuff. Set him up as this high king to fix everything. Because once mm. things are fixed, I'm not going to have a problem fixing my own story. Right. And so, of course, that goes bad because people are people. 
Yes, that's fascinating, though. It's really good, yeah. I have to read this. There's not a lot of fantasy that I feel like I'm just completely unfamiliar with, but I've never even heard of this. Put it this way, it's old enough that when I came to Australia, and because they're always in books of four. Each series in, is in books of four. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at online here. Yeah, and it was like round about the end of the second series of four, which I tracked down through like secondhand bookshops and stuff, because there was no Amazon then. And so I eventually finished it, and the second series of four like involves like a big battle because you Mm. get like a previously off the map kind of other race that comes in uh there are several sections of it i'm gonna digress in a sec but um they you end up getting these massive like continent spanning battles where before you were getting these very personal stories Mm -hmm. and then it brings it down again for the series after and then brings it up again for the series after and each time you get like a reset but it's those same reincarnations it's actually really good i'm i really like that idea yeah it was to the point where i was able to write to her at the end of the second series via email and she wrote back <laughs> That's awesome. Because I was, you know, a 22-year-old fan, I said, hey, what's up with the Australian covers of your books? They're really, like, kind of gross, and there's, like, you know, a dude in a metal loincloth riding a dragon. That never really happens in the books. <laughs> and her response was basically equivalent of, lol, overseas publishers, they do what they have to. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so this is not a spoiler because you would have seen it on the backs of the books. Sure. It's just part of the bigger story. You have humans and you have elves and you have dwarves and dwarves are extremely reclusive you meet like a half dozen of them in the first like eight books they're not really part of things until you go further back and you see why they went away the elves live in the westlands there's like a few tribes that have contact with humans and they like trade and they're just thought of as weird humans by the humans they're never told they're elves and then you get later stories set among them and you learn more about them the idea is okay well the elves are all nomads they live on horseback and travel and they have summer camps they come to and they meet up but that's it they never stay in one place and the reason for that is that the elves used to have cities what happened is that there was a group that was referred to as the horsekin or later the Geldatai. they are these sort of orcish kind of creatures mm-hmm. and they came in an invasion attacked the elvish cities which were like civilian cities they weren't really set up for war and so that was a rout and they were all swept away then the horsekin all died because there was a disease that came upon them because they didn't know how to live in cities. They just kind of laid around and everything got dirty and they all got sick and died. And so the elves basically said, look, we remember, we know the sort of the hubris of building these big cities. We keep moving. What you find is that in a later book, it just starts with, oh, hey, you meet up with this kid who is like the servant to this Gelatai or horsekin bard. And he's, for lack of a better word, civilized. He's a person. He talks about his history and his legends and courts and lore and stuff the same way the human characters do. And they just drop you into it. So it's it's not even like, hey, so we're going to go across to this other place. It's like, no, we're starting a new book with this mm-hmm. new character of a new race you thought was extinct and you thought were villains. Here is a bard who is a decent person. We're just going to let you cope with that. And it's this enormous whiplash. Well, and it sounds like you're being really rewarded for having read the previous material, which I think is something that's very important to do, especially in these epic series, you know? And yeah, it's like, because I read so much of it out of order that I thought I had missed a book. I'm like, (laughs) and I was like mad in the way that only a young person can get mad at a new hook in a fantasy novel. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Where I was just like, no, no, they, they were evil. You said they were always chaotic evil. Right. And they all died. And now they're, like, good and thoughtful, if a bit different. It's like, you can't swerve me like that. No, that's some great subversion of expectation shit right there. And I always love how, like, every fantasy writer, basically since the 60s, is just constantly trying to get away from Tolkien. And, you know, can never quite seem to do it. 
One of my favorite examples of that, and I'm not honestly not like I'm not a Tolkien fan. I'm really not. I remember a while ago when I was first getting into George Martin and the Song of Ice and Fire books. I read a Q and A with him. And there's these group of people in his books called the Children of the Forest. They're very mysterious. No one at the time had ever seen them. Somebody asked him in this Q&A, who are the Children of the Forest? Are they elves? And he was like, no, they're not elves. Elves have been done to death. And then later you meet them and it's like, they're like people who live in nature and in caves and have magic. And I'm like, okay, dude, they're elves. Like, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) They might not be the classic Tolkien elves, but like, they're they're elves. It's alright. We can, you know, my attitude toward Tolkien has always been, we can respect and accept the debt that the genre owes to him while also accepting that we can improve upon his work, so. Exactly. You can also apply that to some stuff like, you know, we mentioned Asimov before. Some of those stories seem really clunky and odd now, but it's like you can see, or or even I read the first Dune book at the (laughs) age of 34, you know? Yeah. And liked the first book, although found some of it impenetrable. Attempted to start the second one and gave up about 30 pages in. And I'm just like, "Mm, I know this is important, but it's (laughs) not for me right now. I tried to read Dune when I was a kid, but like you said, very impenetrable at the time. And I tried to watch the movie. I eventually did get through the entire movie, but when I was a kid, the burning hand scene toward the beginning, really, I was like, okay, turning this off. The pain. (laughs) But I'm going to have to read Dune front to back pretty soon because it's on my list, my Hugo-winning science fiction project that I'm doing here. I still say that first one is, if you go into it with an open mind, I think it's doable. It's just when you get into the sequels and the greater mythology, and there's there's so much talking and explaining. It's like, ugh, it's tough. The way I did it, and I've discussed this on the podcast before, is that when Kimiko was pregnant, we had a little, like, a baby moon, where, because neither of us were working at the time, we were like, okay, well, let's go up to, because in the outskirts of Sydney, there's an area called the Blue Mountains, which is sort of smaller towns, and you know, you get like, you know, country pubs and little cafes and stuff. And so we just like rented an Airbnb cottage up in the mountains. And when I say cottage, it was like someone had built this thing up as like a hay bale house, which they had like molded clay and plaster around to make walls. And it was like a little hobbit hole. It was fantastic. All the edges of the walls were rounded. And there was like a reading nook that you had to climb a ladder to get to. And there's like a clawfoot tub through these like French doors with like green glass. And That's pretty great. Goats grazing out the back. Like, you'd be sitting having your coffee in the morning, and look out the window, and there would be a goat just being like, hey, what's up? Got a lot of reading done while you're up there? Absolutely. And it was only for, like, like two and a half days. We did our best to try and unplug. I brought a paperback copy of Dune that I had stolen from a work lending library, and that work had just laid me off. So I was keeping that shit. <laughs> and so I would basically, yeah, like, climb up to the reading nook and, like, do like I did when I was a kid and, like, lay on my back and hold the book up to the light so I could see it and just, like, powered through that book right on although because i wasn't a kid anymore i also did it some very nice local beer that i had found which was a cherry ale that had been aged in maple syrup bourbon barrels that topped off at a like a solid eight percent alcohol so that's mellow as hell that sounds fucking amazing yeah it's called fruitwood with two o's fruit f-r-o-o-t like i brought a bottle of it back and it's sitting in the back of my fridge until at the time when it's required but it's like it was sort of like the red of hotel towel red and when you pour it and it was funny because kimiko was pregnant so therefore was not drinking and, right. she, and I'm like, you should smell this. This is amazing. And so she like smelled it and like smelled it as if she was like a wine connoisseur and like swirled it a little bit without warning, just buried her face in it and started drinking it. I'm like, hey, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm like, not allowed. Uh, She's like, oh, I just wanted a little bit. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. And attempting to get it back was like, you know, when you tell a dog that's like, drop it. It's like, uh, uh. <laughs> 
Oh man, I imagine that Sharon and I would follow your example if we lived in a country where they gave such things as, you know, time off for having kids. So initially when you wanted to come on the podcast, you specifically wanted to talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, especially Kid Lucas. You wanted to talk about newspaper comics. Yes. You see, kids, back in the day, we used to print comics on dead trees that we would lay on the floor and spread out and then the cat would come and sit on the one comic you were trying to read and you would yes. try and shake the paper to get the cat off of there every fucking time you would read a new comic and then the cat would move to that comic because he was following your eyeline like a jerk so <laughs> so miles what was your experience with newspaper comics so I mentioned already that I was a bookworm as a kid. My parents, you know, were big news consumers, and I was always drawn to the comic section. One of the things that I collected for a long time, formed a big part of my growing book collection, were books of newspaper comic strips. There were a few that I was drawn to in particular. The Far Side, obviously, because who doesn't love The Far Side? And there was, like, Foxtrot, which was a big one for me. And, of course, you know, this does not make me unique in any way, but Calvin and Hobbes was a defining work of fiction in my life. I remember I devoured those books. I, I remember reading the comics every day, devouring the books over and over and over again. I have the, many of them memorized, many of the strips memorized. It's funny, I was actually reading today, before we started recording, I was reading an article about a specific Calvin and Hobbes story, and it's the one where he joins the baseball team. Oh, yes. Somebody wrote an article about how all the adults in that story failed this kid. <laughs> and the author was comparing Calvin to himself and Calvin's dad to his own dad in terms of you're a male, you're a kid growing up, you are kind of expected to be into sports. If you're not into it, then it's assumed that all you need is practice as opposed to actually being taught how to do it. There's kind of innate talent for sports. And I think for a certain generation, baseball in particular, that if you don't have, you know, you're, you're not sufficiently masculine. And what's funny about it most to me is that I'm super into sports now. When I was a teenager, like 16, 17, I leapt into sports fandom with both feet and have yet to surface. But as a kid, I was not athletic. I was not into it. I mean, I, I did some like soccer soccer, you know, like, you know, kids soccer and did some martial arts. By the time I got into like late elementary school, early middle school, I was over it. I just wanted to read. I wanted to play video games. I wanted to watch TV. There's so much about Calvin and Hobbes that is so thoroughly relatable, even if you're not like, because Calvin is a bizarre child. <laughs> I find him one of the most interesting characters in fiction. I was not like, <laughs> you know, necessarily. <laughs> but there are a lot of relatable things in there because, like, for example, his dad, this author that I was mentioning earlier, found a, a connection between Calvin's dad and the sports thing. My connection to Calvin's dad is the fact that my father is, like, super politically aware to a fault and is exactly the kind of guy that would go out on long bike rides and, you know, get in a bike accident <laughs> and call it building character, you know? Is it someone who would buy a hardcover book in cash so you get no marketing information God about damn me right. and the yes. book will last forever? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel like my dad has like slowly turned more into that character as the years go on to a certain extent. But I don't know. Calvin and Hobbes is fun and relatable and incredibly profound. And it's like, I don't understand how you can go from... Sometimes in the space of the same comic strip, you can go from this, like, these delightful visual gags and these, like, funny as hell jokes that have nothing to do with anything, and then all of a sudden you're being hit in the face with a point about life. I feel like I learned a lot about life from Calvin and Hobbes, mm -hmm. which is bizarre, but I can't be the only one who feels that way because it's legendary for that. 
You're right. And I think it's that tightrope that it walks. And the thing is, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, you know, how Calvin and Hobbes can be highbrow and, you know, throwing in references that would go completely over your heads, which still now go over my head, some of the stuff about philosophy and art and stuff. But here's the thing. Calvin and Hobbes will intersperse that with a joke about him blowing a bubblegum bubble so big that it completely envelops his head and he thinks he's turned himself inside out. And that's the whole joke. Or, you know, going out into the snow and making a face and saying that he hates it when his boogers freeze. (laughs) And every kid reading that who had ever gone out in winter in snow pants had gone, oh my God, is that what you call it when you get that feeling when it it gets really cold and you try and sniff it? It feels like it's squishing up into your brain. Watterson actually said he thinks he was the first Saturday morning strip to get the word bookers into the newspaper. I remember reading that <laughs> there was the big illustrated, uh, or there was a big the anniversary copy, one. Yeah. The anniversary one, yeah, that where he had the commentary on his own strips that I really enjoyed. And like, and even that, as I grew older, I started reading that book more and more, and like learning more about what he meant by like his fights for creative control. Oh, and, those were huge, yeah, yeah. And, like, just the story of how these books came about and who this man is. I mean, Watterson is a fascinating character. They did that documentary, I don't know if you ever saw it, the, I think it was called Dear Mr. Watterson. Yeah, it was in my Netflix queue, and then it disappeared because I think they lost the license. But I missed it. Yeah, I saw it, which, it was fine, I, but I remember at the time thinking, this is a fine documentary, but I felt like it was way too wrapped up in the filmmaker and, like, his feelings about the strip. I felt like the filmmaker was too much a part of his own story. But the more I think about it, the more it's like, well, how can you not be? Like, when you talk about Calvin and Hobbes, you're talking about how you relate to it. Because the whole point of that strip is the effect that it had on you. And I think for me, in addition to just informing my moral and philosophical perspective, you know, usually via red wagon rides, <laughs> it also defined my taste in media, I think, to a huge extent. Because I will still tell you that comics, in, in whatever form you want them, are the ideal medium for storytelling. I think Calvin and Hobbes specifically utilizes the medium really well. Yes. Because here's the thing. As a kid who was really into Calvin and Hobbes, you sometimes would try and translate that by telling someone what was happening and saying the stuff out loud. And a lot of it doesn't work out loud. Yeah. Because it is made for the medium that is either a three-panel or a larger Sunday comic strip. And the whole point of that is these jokes can be incredibly wordy and incredibly dense, but they work because you're reading them at your own pace. It doesn't work like some of them do. Like there's actually a great series of shorts in which David Diggs and one of his friends do short videos where they record Calvin and Hobbes dialogue with David Diggs as the Hobbes and his friend was Calvin and they would like act out these little like three beat strips. So it's like that's the rare occasion where it will work. But for the most part, it's utilizing the medium. I mean, if you look at stuff like any of Calvin's imagination, flights of fancy, like Spaceman Spiff or Stupendous Man. Yeah. And you get this, not just this step into another type of story, but into another type of cartooning, into another visual style. Any of the things where you've got, you know, Tyrannosauruses and F-14s right, right. For, for half a strip. And then it comes back to the very sort of simplistic, and there's Calvin screaming, this is so great. And there's Hobbes going, this is so So stupid. stupid. <laughs> well, and what I love most about it in that sense is that talk about Calvin and Hobbes as in the context of the comic book medium. I mean, he broke the Sunday strip format. One of my favorite things about Calvin and Hobbes, one of my favorite stories that Watterson told in that book, he felt so confined by the typical Sunday strip because the way it would work, and I'm 
I don't know if you remember this or if you're familiar with it, but with Sunday panels, it was a very specific thing. You'd have one long, big panel and then one short panel and then the rest of the strip. And the thing about it was that you couldn't put anything in those first two panels that went across the top that the rest of the strip relied on because those first two panels might get cut for space, depending on what newspapers you were being run in. So those first two panels always had to be like a throwaway joke and Watterson hated it. And if Eventually, he won the right to do Sunday comic strips, the ones that were in full color where he got to use the full range of his artistic expression. He won the right to do them however he wanted to. And if you look at some of those later Sunday strips, I mean, the man is so creative and his panel layout is so incredible. He is one of the most gifted storytellers I can think of. He'd be top five. I don't have a lot of evidence for why I feel so strongly about comics being the perfect medium. The only thing I can say is that I have a long list of comic strips and Mm -hmm. comic book stories that have hit me so hard from an emotional standpoint that I have like been sobbing in joy or sadness or both as I read them. And I can say that about, I think, one book, maybe two, one novel and, you know, movies a few as well. But like when it's done right I think, you know, it's like pro wrestling, not to bring it back to that, but it's like pro wrestling can be so bad. And a lot of the time it's such a pile of shit. But when it's done right, it becomes perfect. And comics, I think, I think it's just it's the easiest medium to do it right because you have the visuals, you have the words, you've got all these different ways you can do it. It's such a dynamic and flexible medium. I, I don't know. Calvin and Hobbes, like, because of that strip, I started reading Get Fuzzy, which is fucking hilarious. And, like, it's a, great. It's so good. <laughs> comedically, a more sophisticated strip in a lot of ways. And I'm thinking of The Boondocks, which is probably the best political strip I've ever read. The cartoon does not do it justice, the animated series in my opinion in any sense but the boondocks in terms of social commentary just takes it to the extreme and makes it really work but all of these things have their genesis in in what waterson was able to do with comic strips even something like this modern world which probably most people listening to this have never heard of because it's like an explicitly like wordy analytical political cartoon i think the fact that i love that so much has its roots in the fact that i grew up on these newspaper comic strips on calvin and hobbes and Foxtrot, like I said, I love Foxtrot and, and the Far Side, not Family Circus, go eat a dick, Family Circus, I fucking hate you. But, you know, I don't know. So much of how I view media today is a direct result of reading comic strips every day. Yeah, by the way, I'm about to drop in my favorite of those rebellious Sunday strips. Okay. I found it early on. Listeners, I will put this in the show notes. This is the one where essentially Calvin becomes an Old Testament god drawn in like an EC Comics style. And the entire top row (laughs) is just an entire white panel that says, first there was nothing, and then there was Calvin with an I. And the rest of it is this sort of surreal, space-faring, universal views written in gothic font about Calvin the mighty god creating the universe with pure will and this was him doing his best to be like I am wasting this entire top row because yes. fuck you. Yes. Well I mean he had to. This is one of his best examples of how this format was so restrictive because that top panel doesn't need to be 
that big. Like, the first there was nothing. That is a ton of wasted space. That is, like, a third of the strip. And the panels below it are, of necessity, crammed with detail to the extent they're too busy. And this was one of the strips that he cited as one of the ones that was like, yeah, fuck this. Like, (laughs) I could be doing so much more. And it's what you said about about pro wrestling, and it does help that I've been listening to a lot of Mike Quackenbush podcasts. Oh, yeah, sure. Because he he came down for one of the PWA shows, and he gave a little talk, and he helped on announcing. It's now off the Art of Wrestling feed, but I would recommend if people like pro wrestling, go and find Mike Quackenbush on Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling podcast. Because he gives a speech in that podcast where he talks about how he loves wrestling as a performance art and how it's a, a particular thing where it's the only performance art where... A, there's real danger. B, you can reach out and touch the performers. The performers are aware it's a show. Like, there's like, I've explained to someone, there's at least six levels of meta in pro wrestling. Yeah. And I could go into each of them, but it would bore the pants off anyone who's not who's listening. But what he specifically said is that the pro wrestling that he likes, the pro wrestling that he makes, is not ashamed to be pro wrestling. Yes. There is this internalized shame with a lot of what is considered lower media, and I would include comic strips and comic books in that. Oh, yeah. And this idea that, oh, we have to apologize for what we are, or we have to be sly and go, oh, well, you know, it is just that. And he's like, no, fuck that. This is great. Right. These things that we love are great. And when they are told <laughs> with commitment and when they are told with intent that you can achieve these amazing things with these mediums that you can't do anywhere else. I think the greatest thing about this whole conversation is that everything you're saying, I am, like, linking back to a memory of a Calvin and Hobbes strip. Because, uh, like, he has a comment about low versus high art in that one. Yes, There's a yes, strip yes. you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's the one that I only realized, like, 20 years later is, like, a huge shot at Lichtenstein. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, yeah. he does, the, he does. oh, a painting of a comic strip is high art. <laughs> A painting is high art. A comic strip is low art. A painting of a comic strip is high art. A comic strip about a painting of a comic strip <laughs> right. is, is cra- crass and repetitive low art. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but then also, Watterson also fucking hated comic books. Mm. Like that's because lo- he was. They were writing in the '90s, and the '90s sucked. I'm uh. sorry, guys. <laughs> a lot of the '90s sucked. There was some good stuff being done in the '90s, but a lot of it was, you know, big tits, big pecs, big guns. Yeah, garbage. Yeah, and like he was. He even had a shot. How you know he had a. I think I forget what the superhero's name was. It was like Kill Man or something. Oh God, hold on. Keep or talking. Jungle I'm gonna Girl. try to think of that. I know. I know what you're talking about. And yeah, I remember in the anniversary book, he had a real shot at. It. He's like, oh, you make your hero a psychopath. And you can call it a graphic novel and people will buy it. And I'm like, one, uh, okay, there's some better stuff. But also, you know, he's not wrong. So Sure. But also, it's just to, to bring it back to Lichtenstein for a second, as you find that strip. I was in Uniqlo the other day because I work next to a shopping mall. And so most of my lunch breaks are wandering around looking at stuff that I don't buy. I looked at Uniqlo and they had a Princess Peach. Because they had a bunch of a Nintendo line. And some of them are pretty good and some of them suck. But they had one where it was Princess Peach in the style of the drowning girl, Lichtenstein, which is, you know, I'd rather drown than let Brad save me. Mm -hmm. And it was, oh, I'd rather drown than let Mario save me or something to that effect. And I looked at it and I had a quiet chuckle to myself at thinking, here is Nintendo ripping off Lichtenstein, who was ripping off comic books at the time, uncredited, for a mass-produced t-shirt line. (laughs) There's a certain dark joy in that, isn't there? (laughs) 
Absolutely. Captain Napalm, by the way. That was, was the, the one. Was the name yes. of the guy. Yeah. Ugh. Captain Napalm. And just the, the, his satire of superhero comics is amazing, especially at the time, because this is coming right off of, like, you know, Alan Moore and Frank Miller and comic books being suddenly dark. And Punisher and X-Force and all the image stuff, and yeah. Dark Knight Returns, man. It's so funny. I love that we're, not to transition over to comic books and the media springing from that, but I personally love that the comic book culture is coming back around to like, you know you know what? We're kind of sick of being depressed now. Best example of that, to my mind, is the disparate cinematic adaptations happening right now. DC is still obsessed with everything being dark and realistic. It's just not as good. Nope. It doesn't play as well on screen as actual... You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe bringing actual comic books to films. And I'm really excited to see Thor 2. I don't know if, if that dates me too much here, but... Uh... Thor Ragnarok, not Thor 2. I'm sorry, Thor Ragnarok, yeah. yeah. But yes, I am super excited as well. Hopefully I actually get to see it tomorrow. We've been watching the old ones to kind of get up to speed. But I mean, hell, we had a comic book movie with Rocket fucking Raccoon. I know, it. I know, it's insane. <laughs> and Groot the Tree... It's amazing, and we're getting Korg, the rock man, voiced by Taika Waititi. Yeah. Hey, bro, I'm Korg. We should yeah. get out of here. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that's amazing. Like, I love that you can – and things, that comes back to that Mike Quackenbush thing where I say stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like Thor Ragnarok and stuff like even Black Panther coming up, which looks fucking great. Yeah. It's not ashamed to be a comic book. Let it be silly. That's why people like Jim Cornette can go fuck themselves <laughs> when they talk about how such and such wrestler or such and such wrestling promotion is killing the industry because they are drawing back the curtain. I don't really know what Cornette's problem is. Um, he's but, got lots of problems. Yeah, he does. But like we talked a little bit about Will Ospreay and mm-hmm. the match he had with Ricochet, and so many people had a problem with that match because it was more performance art than trying to be UFC. And I think that is, first of all, I think that's the direction we're going no matter who likes it, because Lucha Underground is a thing and it's glorious. Second of all, why the fuck not? Nobody cares. Are we really, as long as a good story is being told, are you really going to try and pretend the product is brought down because you think people want to believe that it's real? If you think about it, the Ricochet Osprey match, people are like, oh, there is no story. There's just spots and moves. Like, no, the story is here are two superheroes who barely touch yes. the ground. Yes. And they are doing their best to outdo one another. Right. And they can't quite do it. That's all the story you need sometimes. Yeah. Will Ospreay versus Ricochet is what happens when Superman fights Batman. You know, who wins? Sometimes you need more story than that, and sometimes you don't. And wrestling gives you everything, which is one of the great things about wrestling. But I think that when you can find a creator or a work of art that actually gives you that level of versatility within its own universe, like, like Lucha Underground or like Calvin and Hobbes, I would argue, that's one of the things that makes it perfect. And I think that's a really nice note for us to end it on. So I think we'll wrap things up. <laughs> yeah. Comparing Calvin and Hobbes to Lucha Underground. I love it. It's, it's kind of a perfect <laughs> sentence. I can't fight it. <laughs> All right, Miles. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? So first and foremost, I would send y'all over to the Smash Fiction Podcast, which if you haven't already gone over there because you've listened to Claire and Dan on this show, then, you know, I'm not sure my endorsement's going to mean much. But if it does, the Smash Fiction Podcast is our show that is very silly and fun. Lucas has been on it. He was wonderful. You bet your ass I'm going to be on it again because I want right. to see Jeff and Jane Blue from Undercover Blues kick the ass of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> 
so yeah, if you're not aware, Smash Fiction is a show where we argue who would win in fights between fictional characters who have never actually gotten in fights because they're from different works of fiction. It's very fun. You can find it on iTunes and all your podcasting places, and we're all over social media. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash smashfictionpodcast. If you go support us there, you get all kinds of fun perks, like being able to vote on what our matches are, and once a month, one of our hosts provide bonus content, which is really fun. It involves Doctor Doom. A lot of Doctor Doom. It, it can involve Doctor Doom. Um, if you uh, become a patron, you can go listen to the episode where I explain why I don't like Terminator 2. So, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that we offer over at Smash Fiction. You can also find me on the Unspoiled Network of Podcasts, where I am a regular co-host of the Dark Tower series. So that's a show where basically one of the co-hosts has read or seen the work in question, and the other has not. Uh, in this case, I have read the entirety of the Dark Tower series, and uh, Tasha Kingston, who is the matriarch, the queen bee of Unspoiled, uh, has not read Dark Tower, and so we've been going through it chapter by chapter, and we talk about it. We've been doing it for a couple of years now. We're almost through book five, so it's a lot of fun. I wanted to bring up something regarding Dark Tower earlier in this conversation, but you never know when she's listening, and I can't <laughs> I can't risk that she's, she gets spoiled. So. so the Dark Tower series, also if you're a Patreon of Unspoiled, you can listen to our coverage of Game of Thrones, which I think I mentioned earlier. They watch Game of Thrones, and I don't, because no... So uh, <laughs> go check that out. Become a patron of Unspoiled. You can also find me on the Odyssey Storytelling Podcast, which is a show that I host and produce. The main version of the show is a podcast recording of a live show that we do here in Tucson, Arizona, where I live, where every month we get six people together to tell 10-minute stories based on a theme. So, for example, last month was October, and I actually got to tell a story. The theme was Haunted, so I told a story about a haunting. This coming episode is going to be the November show, which the live show was last night. My wife told the story on that show. It's very sweet. The show is chemistry in that case. And then that comes out on the last Thursday of the month. And every other Thursday, the Odyssey Storytelling Podcast puts out a single 10-minute story from prior time in our history before we had a podcast. So we just came out with an episode there. You know, we do that every Thursday. I don't know when this is coming out, so I can't really plug specifics. But, but yeah, Odyssey Storytelling Podcast, we just kind of started out. So if anyone wants to get on board with that, it's a lot of fun and we could really use your support. And then I should also plug my blog. <laughs> Because I don't do too many things. My blog is uh, called Universes of the Mind, and it can be found on universesofthemind.com. Nominally, it is the blog where I read Hugo Award-winning science fiction novels in chronological order and then write about them. The first Hugo Award-winning novel came out... Well, the, the first Hugo Awards were in 1953... I'm currently writing about the 1956 winner, which is Robert Heinlein's Double Star. And I've been writing about that for a few months because it's been honestly pretty hard to juggle the blog with a lot of my other projects right now, but I'm trying to keep up with it. I'm almost done covering Double Star, and then I get to move on to Fritz Lieber's The Big Time. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Slowly but surely making my way down this list. We're not out of the 50s yet, though, so it's going to be a little while. Eventually, I will get to Dune and all the other great science fiction novels that I can't wait to read. It's kind of a way of informing myself about sci-fi and also a way of keeping myself writing. And a lot of people really like it. So again, universesofthemind.com. I think that's it. Oh, just that. You know, just those that's few things. That's it. You know, just, just a few things there. I mean, I could no also makes. plug the, the recent article on towerofthehand.com, but who cares? Nobody cares about that. <laughs> Uh, All right, Miles. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a bit of an adventure, but I'm glad we was. got there in the end. Yeah, we had a good time. Thank you so much for having me. Don't be mine.
Thank you very much to Miles Schneiderman for his time. Now, unfortunately, due to a confluence of circumstances, I actually didn't get Miles' recommendations for signature beverages. I didn't send the question until too late, and yeah, it's a long story. But I have managed to throw something together that I think will please just about any palate. And how did I get there, you ask? Simple. It's pure Calvin Ball. In a shaker full of ice, combine one and three quarter ounces of botanical gin, three quarters of an ounce of Peruvian Pisco brandy, half an ounce of dry vermouth, and two bar spoons of thin cut marmalade. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain through a fine mesh sieve into a cocktail glass. Garnish with a twist of orange zest. Sooner or later, every drink's recipe turns into Calvin Ball. But remember, the score is Oogie to Boogie. Enjoy! The Math View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or you can pledge as much as you want. You could pledge $5,000. That would impress me. Patrons get special cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I just really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out on the show. Wouldn't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used on the show going all the way back to episode one. That's 70 episodes and more than 11 hours worth of music, including this song. It's Cell Phone's Dead by Beck. It's off the information and no one ever talks about that album, but that album was really good. Also, it came with a bunch of stickers, so you could actually make the front of the album look however you want. Flash fact, that actually got it disqualified from the Billboard charts. I update the playlist every Wednesday as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure to subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to, well, actually, I'll be doing something a little bit different. You see, I'm taking a break. Last year, I took a break around the holiday season, but this year's schedule just kept rolling on, and suddenly it was January. 
so I'm going to take a few weeks off to recharge and get a few new things recorded. However, I'm not going to leave you guys in the lurch. As you might have heard me mention multiple times in this sort of back matter of the episode, I have like a whole bunch of bonus episodes of conversations that didn't quite fit into the episode, and I'm going to be releasing those into the feed in the normal Wednesday night spot. You'll be hearing from such fan-favorite guests as James Leesk, Juliet Kahn, Dr. Daniel Bins, Dr. Osvaldo Oyola, and even one Miles Schneiderman. They won't be full length, but they should tide you over until I'm ready to start back up. So until then, join me, won't you? <laughs>